Shut up and sit down. Hello, strangers, and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Anderson, here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week, sir? I'm pretty good, man. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm just about recovered from Sunday, which uh, some listeners might be aware was the day on which I had to run 21 kilometres or a half marathon, depending on which way you want to cut it, Um, which, as I told you just before we started recording today, was almost without enjoyment for me because I started feeling like nauseous at about the three kilometre mark. For some reason, I'm not entirely sure of at this point. So it was, yeah, if you can imagine doing a half marathon with a hangover, then it's a bit like that. I wasn't hungover, but it was a kind of similar feeling of like lethargy and nausea. So yeah, it sucked, but um, the time was okay and it's now finished. Have you done all 300 of your 300 miles worth of cycling now? Done all 300 of my 300 miles worth of cycling, which is fantastic. I managed to raise £500 for cancer research, which is even more fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's it was a great experience. It's the first time I've ever done anything like it. Um, I believe, I think I've dropped... I've, looking in the mirror the other day i'm confident i've dropped at least one possibly two chins in weight as well so that's that's (laughs) that's the unit of measurement in my opinion so that's the unit of measurement uh because as soon as you get on the scales the scales seem to dictate on the same weight but i definitely look different and people have told me as much so that's a winner in my book so yeah i was gonna say paul that i've seen a couple of shots of you from exit six that went down over the weekend that i know you were involved in and you were definitely looking trimmer so i can well thank you that's good (laughs) it's good to know Uh, so talking of that yeah yeah, you did hosting at Exit 6 at the weekend. How did that go? All successful? Oh, I loved it. Genuinely loved it. I was a touch nervous to start with because, you know, I, I've, I've, we've we've been to Exit 6 in the past. It's a great event. Um, obviously, we are. I do know the the guys, the, the team that puts it on or the, the man behind it, Mark Brennan, who's been guested on the show before. So uh, when a friend asks you to do something, it's there's always some added pressure there at times. Um, but no, I think once I got into the swing of it, I think I did well. Uh, the feedback seems to have been good and I, I think I enjoyed it. It was great to meet lots of film makers um and great to be a bigger part of the festival um and hopefully i'll continue to be a, a, big, a bigger part of it again next year so we'll we'll see how we go but the festival itself was great um the short film selection was superb got to meet the actor Bern gorman who was there in person this year he picked his um he picked his winner he was a very nice chap uh, very very down to earth um you wouldn't have known he was um an actor of some repute at all uh in all honesty so yeah it was great to meet him and it was a great weekend and the after party was as you've experienced it pete um a fairly heavy evening, shall we say. So yeah, um, Exit 6 was fantastic again. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, for, for all of the great film-related stuff at that festival, I do remember coming back from one where, I think this was that time, where I was telling you in the car that I needed to open the window and then immediately yeah. need to close the window <laughs> yeah. and then open it again. And I think Katy Perry was about the only music that we could listen to. I think to we listened like to most of the Firework it. album. I think we just kept listening to Firework and Dark Horse on repeat for the hour and yeah. a half journey home. I remember we missed, I think I missed the junction to get onto the road to Cheltenham as well that was that impressed you if I remember rightly when we were driving back so yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean this is sort of like uh, you know self-incriminating in terms of giving people this much insight into the strangeness of our lives when we're not recording this but uh, just last thing on exit six I know that at the end of the festival there's always this um, choice as you mentioned of the sort of best short film for what it's worth of all the great films that are there what kind of film won this year like was it a, a genre film was it a, a drama like um, what kind of movie I would won say 
it was it was a drama but with kind of like a, a dark twist called um the cunning man if you check it out I'll, I'll try and post a link to it if i can or certainly i'll post a link to to the filmmaker of it i don't think it's widely available yet because it's doing the festival circuit at the moment um so that one best film that was Bern gorman's choice for best film and then uh, a French short that I was lucky enough to see at Rebel Film Festival earlier in the year called A Wreck in Paradise won audience choice as well. So I will put up some uh, information about those if you're interested in those short films. Um, and we'll we'll keep an eye on when you can possibly see them wider than the festival circuit. So you tend to yeah. find that the, these things go out on the festival circuit first and then will appear, perhaps eventually appear online or appear That's elsewhere right. or appear elsewhere later on. So yeah, there's some um, yeah fantastic films. Um, and as I said, I hope to be involved again next year. Hint, hint, Mark, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get it done. Sign, yeah. sign the document, yeah. sign the contract now. Um, yeah, uh, you know, all festivals um, are great festivals as far as we're concerned. But another one going on at the moment is London Film Festival. Now, usually with a thing like that, we'd be across it and we do a whole feature on it. The thing is that today we want to do not only a feature review, but also another top five. Um, so we're not actually going to be focusing on London for now. But maybe once it's all over, we'll have a kind of aftermath section. And we've been quite busy, let's be honest. And we really <laughs> so, have. Yeah. yeah, and we really have. And if we hadn't been so busy, maybe we'd be in London you know schmoozing and watching a bunch of films now anyway so that's yeah. just the way the cookie crumbles on this occasion but uh yeah in terms of today's show then i've mentioned that we're going to have a feature review that one will be ready or not which is uh, very much a, a sort of genre film that i think has impressed both of us quite a lot and um, we're going to compel more people to maybe go and see so we'll get to that in due course in addition to that as i mentioned we've got a top five the top five is this week top five dysfunctional movie families inspired by uh, ready or not for anyone who's seen that <laughs> you'll completely understand and if not then bear with us on that one um obviously all the other sections of, sh of the show are in place and the first of those is in the foyer which is where we talk about film news paul what's going on in the world of film other than all of the stuff that you got involved in uh, in your capacity at the festival this weekend you know what other stuff have you picked up on um, the Russo brothers, um, who people should probably know from uh, directing Infinity War and Endgame most recently, but if you don't know, they were involved in a series called Community, which is one of my favourite comedy shows of all time. Um, so I'm very excited to see what they're going to be directing next, and it's not Marvel related, which should be interesting, Pete. Um, this is a film called Cherry, which is based around the true story of a former army medic called Nico Walker, who is in jail for bank robbery after suffering from PTSD and an opiate addiction. Um, so, yeah, it's a true story. It stars Tom Holland in this role. So it'd be interesting to see Tom Holland take on a more serious acting role as well, because I think he's he is a talented actor. I think we've kind of been sort of not lost his, his talents obvious from spider-man but it would be nice to see him take on a more serious role again similar to kind of what he did in the impossible and that kind of thing mm. so i'm quite excited about that um and i think the other reason i'm quite excited about this film is we've got michael gandolfini in a supporting role in this which is the son of james gandolfini um right. who is one of my all-time favorites so i think this would be very interesting to see what the russo brothers do next i think for them to jump from community to doing the work they did with the marvel films was an incredible leap um in terms of scale um and they should be complimented i think for for taking that leap successfully but at the same time for me i i'm very intrigued to see them do something a bit within a bit more serious tone a bit more sort of lo-fi so yeah i'm quite excited for this one i'll be honest mm. talking of things we should be excited for um i, I want to say friend of the show but i can't go that far i, I think certainly <laughs> uh somebody that we advocate on this show ben wheatley the british director ben, we ben, ben wheatley has been uh not only linked with but confirmed as the director of tomb raider 2 or whatever they decide to call the sequel to the rebooted tomb raider series returning on this one is both Alicia Vikander and Kristen Scott Thomas who were in the movie from 2018 
the new movie, before you get too excited, currently has <laughs> a 2021 release slated. In fact, March of 2021 is what they're going for right now. So it's a ways off. But the reasons to get excited here is like for people who don't know, Ben Wheatley is this guy who directed things like um, Kill List and High Rise and Sightseers and Free Fire quite recently. And just a guy who... Um, maybe confrontational is too, too strong of a description, but somebody who's very much, yeah, like in your face with his style of film direction. And I think that that might be perhaps the shot in the arm that Tomb Raider needs because we had this raw Utag, Utag, I think is his name, the director of the first one, the first movie being in parts entertaining, but in large swathes, like really quite bland. And in the end, I think both of us came away quite underwhelmed by the reboot of Tomb Raider, other than, you know, all our compliments for Alicia Vikander embodying that that role. Um, in partnership on writing duties, again with Wheatley, is Amy Jump, who's worked on most, if not all, of his uh, projects okay, to, so this, this, to this, this point. This is intriguing, then, if, if, if his creative team are with him as well, and he's not just been sort of flown in to make someone else's script. Yeah. Right. Exactly, yes. exactly. So I, I would assume, Paul, that this would be something that you would be in on um, in terms of being already a bit of a pre-existing Tomb Raider fan, but certainly a Ben Wheatley fan, right? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I love Mo, pretty much all of Ben Wheatley's films, actually, in all honesty. I think Free Fire might be my least favourite, but I still had a lot of time for it. Um, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah, and it also, it also intrigues me when you throw, for want of a better word, sort of an art house or indie director um, straight into... Um, what is definitely going to be a more mainstream um, blockbuster blockbuster type film um, so yeah the premise yeah uh, color color me intrigued Pete which I know you hate me saying but yes <laughs> and and you're something that I don't know how we haven't mentioned on the show Paul your mate that you are now yeah pretty much uh, linked up with who came into your store quite recently <laughs> it may be returning for this one as well are you are you able to divulge the the information regarding this meeting or is it all on lockdown right now uh no it's all on lockdown <laughs> okay fair enough Paul, no, Paul's just been schmoozing with famous people that's well it. no I bumped in I bumped into Dominic West in my place of work and he was a very lovely man and we had a, a fantastic conversation about The Wire amongst other things um, yeah. and and certain members of the Tomb Raider cast but I can't repeat that conversation so we'll leave it yeah. at that yeah you're, you're absolutely right to be cautious I think there's certain details that you've divulged to me that we can't put out in this podcast but yeah, yeah uh, shouts to Dominic and uh, we'll see whether he rejoins Tomb Raider on this next outing in 2021 so that brings us to the end of the in the foyer section we will be back after just a little break with the section of the show that we like to call popcorn movies right after this right and back we are this is the section of the show where we basically talk about films new or old uh, that we've been watching in the week uh, I'm going to dive in first. I said I haven't had a chance to watch much this week because I've been quite busy, as we've alluded to in earlier episodes. But hopefully that will change because I'm looking forward to actually sitting in dark rooms and watching films again. So that should be good. Or feature films, should I say. Um, yeah, so the first one I've got to talk about this week is In the Shadow of the Moon, which is a Netflix exclusive directed by a guy called Jim Mickle, who you may remember way, I forget how many years ago. Cold in July, Pete? Does that ring any bells? Yeah. Michael C. Hall. Um, right. uh, 2012, maybe? I think it came out the same year as Blue Ruin and wasn't quite as good as Blue Ruin, if I remember rightly. Could be um, t- could be later then, 2013 or 14, I think. Because yeah. Blue Ruin's right, th- right about the time we started this podcast, because it was the first thing that we reviewed as a kind it was. Of- practice yeah. so that's a marker yeah 
so yeah, Cold in July, which I thought was okay, not 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 incredible, but not terrible. It had it had some merit. So this is yeah, this is a director of that. Uh, in this film, we've got Michael C. Hall again. Uh, in the lead role, we've got Boyd Holbrook, who's an actor I'm quite fond of. I think he's a I think he's a charismatic stage presence. Um, and Cleopatra Coleman is in this as well. Um, this is. I would say, for the most part, a, a, a clever, a very clever kind of sci, lo-fi sci-fi time travel thriller, um, which I enjoyed a lot in the first half, um, and I was a hundred percent hooked in the first half. And then it start the pacing starts to wobble, and things just the film feels a little bit too long in the second half. But that being said, for for the most part, it's I'm, I won't give it, to talk too much about the plot. We'll give it away. There's time travel involved. If I if I talk too much about it, it, it it will ruin the plot. It's one of those films that is very intriguing as you go along, and the less you know, the less you know when you go into it, the absolute better. So if you do no reading on this, then do no reading on this because it will it will benefit you for sure. Um, yeah, to say yeah, as I said, first half great, I absolutely loved it. Second half had some wobbles. That being said, as Netflix films go i think it's one of the better ones out there um boyd holbrook i think again puts in a good performance and i think at some point he will break out and become a bigger star i'm just not sure he's necessarily choosing exactly the right films at the moment or maybe he's just not being offered them um what have we reviewed with him in sorry uh, so he was the villain in logan right and he was also the lead guy in predators or the predator that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I can picture. Yeah, so now, yeah. so charismatic for sure. Um, but yeah, not always picking the right films. If you see where I'm coming from. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's solid. There's there's a lot worse things on Netflix. Um, there for the most part, the time travel is used in a pretty clever way, and actually, the it isn't overused, which is quite nice. Um, there's a twist that I didn't see coming, but yeah, check it out. Like again, it's one of those. The nights are drawing in. It's it's you're not gonna you're not gonna come away from thinking it's a classic, but you probably will have a half decent time with it. So yeah, check out In the Shadow of the Moon. Um yeah, Pete, check it out and let me know what you think on a future show. Bring as well. it bring it back, Paul Anderson. What you used to say at this point, back back in the olden days, was worth a watch. Worth it a watch. sounds yeah. like this that's is basically worth what a I'm watch. going with. You could see I was trying to do trying to say everything <laughs> but that. So uh yeah, absolutely. Uh in the shadow of the moon, worth a watch. Nice. <laughs> Um, also worth a watch, although be <laughs> awfully careful what disposition you, you are in when you come into watching this one, is uh, Midsummer, which I know is a film that you've already fully covered on this show when I was sort of on self-imposed hiatus. So obviously I'm not going to dive into all the intricacies of this thing because it take way too long. I feel like I could talk about it for 45 minutes quite comfortably, <laughs> but I will save you that. Uh, it's two and a half hours, so there's a lot to chew on. This, of course, is Ari Aster's follow-up to Hereditary, which I believe was his feature debut, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and, and, you know, at this point, you know, the difficult second album or whatever, you can certainly feel themes emerging, can't you? I mean, for <laughs> one, Paul, the first thing I thought of talking to you about when I saw this movie is like, nobody else, bar maybe Gaspar Noé, is showing the effects of drugs in films in quite the same way that Ari Aster is. What he did in Hereditary with the weed party, for want of a better description, was, to me anyway, harrowing. And what he does here in an early sequence with Florence Pugh taking mushrooms in a field in, where are they, Sweden? Is... Yeah just so unsettling but unsettling because it is so 
very precisely observed rather than being like a drug sequence that you see in a lot of movies that bears no real resemblance to the experience people might have of doing those drugs right so yeah this guy gets right under your skin when it comes to things like the presentation of those feelings and this is a movie kind of all about uh, internal turmoil and feelings the other theme that I think emerges connecting this to hereditary again is like this idea of anointing people crowning people but crowning them in a way that is sort of terrible or burden burdensome you know in hereditary of course it related i believe to a sort of um downward passing of mental illness through a family tree and in this movie it relates to crowning the may queen at is what what is a frankly terrifying increasingly terrifying uh set of festivities happening there in in sweden um yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I listened actually after watching the movie to your, your guys, you and uh, Zig Bingham on our show, your review of it. And I think mm. you touched on most of the stuff that I would say anyway. So I would compel people to go back and listen to that episode and check out that discussion. Um, Florence Pugh's excellent, which you, you touched on and which we know already, right? Um, maybe- she is. I think she's one of the, the most talented young actors working today, to be honest. I think she is. She's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah, she's got a real ability to be sort of um, big and small, which sounds like a really crude description. But I think it's something I see in, um, for example, Caitlin Dever, who I might talk about a little bit later on as well. Somebody who can seem almost childlike in a sequence and then later can have this kind of um, like emotional range and sort of um, boldness of character that shows that, yeah, this is an actress working kind of at the top of her game. And, you know, she's what, 25, maybe? Mm at this point so yeah i totally agree with you on that um i think the negatives wise on midsummer um and you just have to it's one of the films just watch it i mean come on if you listen to our show you, you you've got to be on board already with ariaster i think but um once it gets towards the landing of the thing you know hitting sticking the landing at the end of the movie i'm not quite sure that ariaster pulls off the success that I, but not everyone, believes that he did in Hereditary. I think how Hereditary was pulled to a close was punchy and effective and affecting. I think in Midsummer it becomes kind of very close to grating um, towards the end. And I think a lot of that's down to a sort of overuse of a particular set of um, like oral cues and sounds. Um, mm. but that is just one opinion amongst a load of other positive opinions that I had about this it's not an easy watch it's not going to make you feel awfully comfortable for most of its runtime. Um, you mentioned in your review that the comedy I think for you guys sort of variably worked and sort of didn't work and yeah. for me I think I think that there, there were, it's all like punctuated what was going on but it never really distracted or detracted too much for me so yeah like overall I, I really liked Midsummer. I really like Ari Aster and what he's doing and I really like even just like the boldness of this director to do interesting stuff with the camera like you mentioned in your review the spinning of the camera when the guys are going off to this camp in in Europe yeah. but even he does these things where he'll start with a sort of horizontal shot of the sky and then drop the camera down to like ankle <laughs> height and it gives you that like um, like when you come over the crest of a hill and your stomach turns when you're in a car like it gives you that feeling which only reinforces all of this kind of unsettling atmosphere that he he builds up the only thing i'd finish on paul is like it will be interesting to see after hereditary after midsummer where ariasta goes next because i'm imagining he doesn't want to become pigeonholed as the you know 
awful, increasingly awful things happening in a tense, at- queasy atmosphere, guy. You know, like there's got to be another avenue to go down for this. Yeah, and I think it's, I think, it, yeah, I think it ultimately that for me is the mark of what, when a good a good director becomes a great director when they can mess around with different genres um, mm. and and see and certainly see where they go next. Interestingly, there is a director's cut of Hereditary doing the rounds that got a theatrical release in the US and I don't know if it's come over here or whether it got such a limited release. I haven't seen it yet and I think it's possibly about half an hour longer. So I'm very intrigued to see that um, because I think one of my concerns, if I remember rightly my review, was I thought this was perhaps a little bit too long as the theatrical cut stood. So I'm going to be very intrigued to see the director's cut and I will absolutely check it out because it's certainly wherever you stand on it and wherever you stand on his films um he's one of the most exciting filmmakers working today as far as i'm concerned so yeah midsummer midsummer was yeah it was one of the one of the better films of the year for me so far for sure yeah maybe we'll come back to it when we do the end of year list and you know remembering of course these are the first two films in terms of output so yeah onwards yeah. and upwards for Ari Aster, i guess so um paul we wanted to then collab i think on the end of popcorn movies today because we haven't neither of us have seen loads this week i guess in terms of features so there is one more that we would have had as a full-blown feature review were it not for the fact that i don't think either of us are going to be particularly enthusiastic about it um, and this one is a little film called the gold Finch, which is on general release, <laughs> wide release this week, um, starring amongst others Nicole Kidman, uh, Finn Wolfhard from uh, Wolfhard, I should say, from Stranger Things, and um, who am I missing? Ansel Elgort um, and Sarah Paulson, Luke Wilson this as, well. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. Cool. So I guess um, t- the the briefest of setups is as we previewed last week. There's a terrorist attack that besets uh, um, art museum. In that art museum, a little boy is separated from his mum who dies in the blast. He then goes on with his life, tries to pick up the pieces of uh, his existence, being pushed from sort of adoptive family back to his. Um, biological dad who is played by Luke Wilson whose partner is Sarah Paulson and who is largely useless and angry and selfish Um, and all the while he harbours this kind of secret that he may have left the gallery with more than just emotional scarring uh, in the form of a valuable painting which is of a goldfinch unsurprisingly. Um, This didn't work for you as I'm already aware from your letterboxed (laughs) review and it didn't particularly work for me either. Should we try and come up with a potted set of reasons why it doesn't really work? Yeah, I mean, I'll give it a go. I mean, I'll be honest. I'll, I'll be honest, listeners. I came out and just basically said, to, I think I phoned my wife and messaged a few people. I was like, I've just seen The Goldfinch and I don't want to watch any films ever again. Uh, this is how this is how much this film did not work for me. Um, and I went in with an open mind because I knew it had bombed at the box office. And we said last week on the show, just because something, uh, bombs are probably the wrong choice of word as I did last week, but um, just because something doesn't necessarily do well at the box office doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a bad film. So I went in with an open mind and I thought, okay, maybe this will be okay. And by about what felt like five hours into it, I think it's the first time I've ever kind of looked at my watch about, I think I was half an hour in. Um, the, the, my biggest problem with this film is just the pacing. And I think that just I think whoever adapted this for the school, well, John Crowley directed this, but whoever the creative team in terms of the writing have, have adapted the book for a film, for me have showed a crass misunderstanding that you cannot just take a book and film it. And this, to me, felt like this film's biggest problem is there's the there's such long, long, long sections with, spent with the child with with the child characters that just seem to go nowhere, and the plot slows down to like the thickest sludge you've ever tried to walk through, to the point where I'll be honest with you, I don't think I've been as bored in a film 
in 10 years, 100%. I just did, honestly, (laughs) I just did not want to be in the cinema anymore. I was just like, when is this going to end? And then it kind of, and then occasionally when it does make the jump to the adult characters, I'm just like, okay, you've got Ansel Elgort here. Um, Like, and and it it jumps forward in time to to the adult adult child with the painting. You're like, okay, this is moving somewhere now. And it's like, but the editing for me was a shambles. The way it just cut around, it didn't feel like it was just, it didn't put, Put, didn't feel very well put together and I just I'll be honest Pete I, I hated this I and it's rare I come on here and say I hated it I hated it <laughs> yeah I mean the, the jumping around that you're talking about is absolutely true you're jumping between these uh, the, you know the same timeline but different areas of the timeline from a child version of or incarnation of the central character then to a sort of mid-20s version which is of course Ansel uh, Elgort uh, playing play the, the older version of this character but sometimes those like we're used to seeing that sort of fractured narrative where we jump mm. to childhood and back again but sometimes like you're touching on there Paul like the choices as to when to jump just seemed like incoherent or yeah. or like a, 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 maybe being a bit more complimentary it's just random like just almost yeah. random that that not only are we jumping at sort of a random time but then we're spending an inordinate amount of time for a reason that doesn't seem entirely clear with you know what it made me think about is um the it seemed like a stretch like a lot of the things that I probably say but uh, the the writer David Foster Wallace is kind of famous for writing um footnotes some of which are longer than the actual paragraphs that he's included on the page so mm. you'll you'll get a footnote that's two thirds of the page whereas the body text is only one third and it okay. felt like so much of what we're getting filled in is sort of asides and footnotes that don't seem particularly propulsive to the actual drive of this narrative and to the themes that are trying to be hammered home. This, by the way, is the the screenwriter who um, worked on Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, uh, Peter Strayan. Um, And it seems like the screenplay is just so faithful to the source material. Or not, maybe that's the wrong way of saying it. Like, the, the screenplay seems to treat this material as if it's incredibly valuable um, like some kind of great work of art in a gallery, I, I guess. And like we're going to get this swelling emotional punch towards the end when, you know, the gravity of this guy's situation settles and falls into place. And that was never going to happen. I mean, I, I the payoff just isn't there, is it? I mean, once you get to the conclusion of the story, you're supposed to come away from it feeling like, oh, I've questioned you know the the monetary value of art versus the value of art as a sort of reminder of things gone by and human histories and that sort of thing but like it's so bland or like I was gonna say it's so like meh like a word that I hate people using to describe things but it's so like meh this movie about yeah dealing with I mean I I came away questioning the monetary value of my Odeon Limitless card, I'll tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah, I just, I, I'm with you, Pete. It just, it feels to me like they just so slavishly recreated the book, they forgot they were writing a film. And that, I think, is its biggest problem for me. Mm. But yeah, I haven't I mean, read the book, you see, so I can't, no, I can't ne- firmly judge that. So neither have I. Neither have I. To be fair, and we should be clear about that. But I mean, yeah, are there good things here? Yeah, there are like a bits and pieces. There are individual sequences that work quite well. But like, even more so, that reminds you of the trudge that you're on at the time. Like the part where we have an inevitable sort of moment of self-realization sequence that is coordinated uh, with jumping into a swimming pool to the sounds of Tom York. I mean, I even, yeah, right, I even thought. 
why, I, if I'm starting to question in why they're using Radiohead as a soundtrack and I've got a Radiohead tattoo and I was just like, I literally, I just heard Radiohead and I just groaned. I audibly groaned in the cinema and I've got a Radiohead tattoo. So it's not just like, I was just like, this is so trite yeah. in places. So trite. Well, you remember, you remember <laughs> the bit where the girl in The Descendants jumps into the swimming pool and it's Biffy Clyro. I mean, like the, yeah. we've seen that like exact sequence used so many times. You've also got this um, beautifully, like, it was Roger Deakins who, who uh, the cinematographer on this thing. Mm. I mean, it looks great at times. We have this beautifully like candlelit dinner that takes place between Elgort's character and a sort of significant other from growing up who has shared experience in terms mm. of being in the room when the attack happened. And in the background of that one, you've got cigarettes after after sex. Of course you have, because all of the sort of, uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> the, the, the movies that are reaching for sort of some sort of indie credibility or artistic credibility are throwing stuff like that on the soundtrack these days. And like then you're just sort of reminded like, yeah, this in isolation, as much as I don't really like that music, this in isolation looks lovely. It's terrific, but it's all part of like this this sort of grey jigsaw that we're just, you know, leadenly placing the pieces into to build a picture of something that's not particularly interesting to look at in the end. And I think like Nicole Kidman's kind of wasted in it as well. I mean, Nicole Kidman plays, you know, prissy, uh, you know, well-to-do lady adoptive mother or foster mother of sorts for a while and then disappears um to only to have like a couple of heartfelt scenes you know later in the movie and and it's a shame because she you know when we previewed this we said nicole kidman's doing all this interesting work recently it'll be great to see her again she's underused and and it's a shame i think yeah yeah i yeah i i, I, I co-sign on all of that in all honesty i said i can't if this isn't sitting on quite high up the uh, the naughty list of the end of the year for me, I'll be very very surprised. I just I, I can't I can't speak highly enough. Just avoid this film, like leave well alone. I just can't. I, it's so dreary. <laughs> yeah, or to, or talking about like you know Blu-ray release DVD release cuts. If we could get like an hour 40 minute version of this movie that runs something like two hours 40 minutes in its current form, then maybe we'd have something that's like a passable three star movie. I don't but disagree it, with you, to be honest. And the, the, length, the length and the pacing is or it's definitely its biggest problems. Yeah, I mean, I understand they're cutting down a, a fairly sizable novel, which would have run, you know, six, seven hours if it had been, you know, put to screen in its entirety. But that's the challenge that you face. And maybe if you can't encapsulate what that novel is without running way too long and too dreary, then you might want to adapt something else because this thing it felt like one of those movies where you watch a literary adaptation and you think I can imagine this book being quite interesting but as a visual spectacle as a, a visual narrative it just doesn't work all the texture is taken away and what we've got instead is montages montages of someone traveling somewhere on a bus montages of someone growing up in a particular locale like I, uh, yeah it's not a feature review paul we're not going to talk about it anymore the goldfinch is it isn't very good uh, albeit there are a few little bits in there that will make it slightly more bearable but it's still basically <laughs> a waste of about three hours yeah uh, absolutely there's a montage somewhere of me passing out in the cinema when i watched it so look, check, check that out as well on the odian bath cctv footage i'm sure it's there so yeah <laughs> lovely <laughs> right. stuff anyway well, we'll be back after this uh with um coming attractions yes we will
So, Pete, this is the part of the show, people, for those who don't know, where Pete throws some coming attractions at me, which is this week's big releases, and I basically say whether I am kind of give like a thumbs up or thumbs down uh, in a gladiator-style way, but what I do is I actually use words to do that, because I'm aware that you at home listening cannot see whether my thumb goes up or down, uh, so I'm going to do that with words. Um, Pete, throw them at me. Yes, so the Goldfinch, as we just mentioned, kind of sucks, so we're going to try and get excited about movies that are coming up so that we don't yes. get all like downbeat <laughs> on this episode. So, first of all, it's funny that the first movie that I've got then on the list is uh, Joker, of course, which is the major wide release this week. Uh, this one is, uh, for people who are unaware or haven't seen the trailer incessantly at the cinema, is from director Todd Phillips, uh, written by Scott Silver in collaboration with Todd Phillips, and starring, of course, in the central role, role, I should say, Joaquin Phoenix, um, alongside the likes of Zazie Bates and uh, Robert De Niro. We've talked about this one a bit. There has been some controversy. There are people who are reacting to it without seeing it. Then there are people who are reacting to it after seeing it, both very positively and very negatively. I've just seen Matt Singer on Letterboxd gave it one and a half stars. But on the other end of the spectrum, you've got people giving it sort of fours and fives and calling for awards for Joaquin Phoenix and so on. Um, where are you at with anticipation now, Paul, now that we're sort of a day I'm, away from I'm, the release? I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to see it tomorrow, actually. I've just booked tickets. Um, yeah, I'm excited. And I don't know where I'm going to fall on this part of me and I really don't know like part of me thinks I'm going to go in I'm going to think it's incredible and another part of me thinks I don't know whether I'm going to come because I read the Peter Bradshaw review earlier which was two stars and he described it as the most disappointing film of the year I don't know whether I'm going to come away and part of me I don't know I don't know whether I'm going to come away and part of me thinks this is good this is going to try this is going to be one of those films that's trying too hard to be edgy or like it's going to be like edge lord material for want of a better description so I'm torn. I think I'm either either going to come out being blown away by it or I'm going to come out hating it. I don't think there's going to be an in-between for me. Pete, where do you stand on this? I've got a nagging suspicion that I'm going to hate it. But <laughs> I, I will reserve judgment, I promise. I'm not going in just go, you know, already decided my opinion about the movie. I'm really not because that's not in my interest and that doesn't make talking about the films interesting either. No, but absolutely. I th- for, for a very, like knowing myself relatively well, particularly in terms of like film taste and stuff, I think I'm going to hate it. But we'll see because we'll do a full feature review next week on the show. Um, in addition then, out this week wide, we've got Judy... Um, this one, let me scan for some additional details. Actually, this is a movie I was supposed to see the other day, and then I couldn't go, um, so I have to wait. Yeah, this is, of course, the story of Judy Garland. In the title role is Renee Zellweger, who is an actress that I feel like has disappeared for about a decade. Am I Yeah, I think she did a Bridget Jones three call. That's not a word. The third Bridget yeah, Jones is. film, I think that's I the... think it is these okay, days. Fine. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, no, I don't think I've seen, I haven't seen her in much. She may have done television on the side that I've missed, I guess. I'm um, almost certain but, she has, yeah, but I haven't seen it, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah I mean, so another is... reason... Go on, sorry. Go ahead. No, this is the biopic of Julie Garden, isn't it? Unless I'm yeah, yeah, mistaken. that's right. Yeah, yeah Julie yeah. Garden. All I was going to tag on, Paul, was just that uh, another reason to be maybe interested in this one from a sort of stranger's point of view is that um, also starring is Jessie Buckley, who's an actress that, you know, from Beast and elsewhere, um, Wild Rose, that we really like, I think. So um, it'd be interesting to see her work here. Uh, yeah, Judy Garland, of course, legendary performer. The story charts her arriving in London in the winter of 68 to perform a series of sold out concerts. And as I said, I was going to go the other day, ended up not being able to go. I, I think I'm in. I mean, my wife is like 100% in on, on this movie. Uh, will you see it, do you think? No, I'll be honest. I think there's, I mean, 
It's difficult to say that. If we were doing it as a feature review for the show, of course I'd see it. But if there is a genre I have had enough of, it's musical bar picks. I just, I just can't see this. I'm sorry, I just can't get excited about these anymore. It, it, um, uh, Rocket Man was reasonable. It had some nice song and dance numbers, but again, that was the bit that saved it for me. But I can, like, I just know what's going to happen in this film. Like, it, I, I don't know anything about Judy Garden, but I can tell you for sure, like, the plot of this film, she's going to have to overcome something, and then she'll fall out with someone, and then all will be right in the end, and then there'll be a nice montage at the end, and it'll be like, oh, well, how great Judy Garden was. I just cannot sit through these films anymore because they're all the bloody same i'm sorry i, I really struggle with the yeah, politics at the moment i mean paul <laughs> I, I would chastise you for that opinion but to be fair i haven't seen yet rocket man or the freddie mercury one what was oh, the bohemian rhapsody okay yeah haven't, haven't seen <laughs> yeah. either and it's not because i haven't had time it's because each time i think oh we could put that on i think no there's loads of other stuff i want to watch instead exactly it doesn't yeah. appeal to <laughs> yeah. me that much yeah. and to be honest if i'm going to watch a musical biopic i think i'm just going to watch walk hard again so maybe do that high five to that one yeah this. for sure yeah watch yeah I, yeah i'm out with i'm out with judy to be honest it's, it's not my thing i wish everyone the best of luck who goes and enjoys it but it's not for me <laughs> so a uh, completely different um offering for you here another one on limited release this week is called the climbers and i previewed this when we talked about upcoming films or anticipated films of the year um, at least briefly anyways, from director Daniel Lee. But the real draw here is in one of the starring roles, the uh, Chinese actress Zhang Ziyi, um, who people will know from like House of Flying Daggers and that glut of films that were so very popular sort of around the turn of the century, around the year 2000. This one is based in 1960 on Mount Everest and specifically the second step under the cliff. Four members of the China Everest Climbing Command are attacking the most difficult and most difficult second step at a time when varying levels of disaster strike this from the trailer looked awesome um it looks like this really sort of big expensive production and things that you know connect with mountain climbing mountaineering and that kind of thing tend to appeal to me for whatever reason how are you feeling paul is this something that you would uh... seek out yeah, if I can find it, I will see it. Um, yeah, I think it looks. I watched the trailer quite recently, actually, and yeah, I think this. I think this looks fantastic. So, um, it, and if nothing else, it will be fun because of the setting, and I'm sure it will look. Fant I'm sure it will look incredible. So, yeah, fully on board with this one. Fully on board with this one. I might have to end up waiting until Blu-ray as I'm away again next week. But yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to see this. So yeah, one that's on board, gonna Pete, then... on board. Yeah, where, wherever you are, one that's going to be a lot easier to track down for not only you, but everybody else is the last uh, offering for this week, which is In the Tall Grass. This one is going to release on the 4th. Is that today? No, it's tomorrow. So that will be Friday the 4th. We're recording on a Thursday. Uh, this one, uh, In the Tall Grass, is going to drop on Netflix on Friday the 4th. And it is a, uh, by all accounts, horror, thriller, drama type movie uh, that is all about uh, events in tall grass as you might guess from the title. Uh, the synopsis here says, After hearing a young boy's cry for help, a sister and brother venture into a vast field of tall grass in Kansas, but soon discover there may be no way out, and that something evil lurks within. For some reason, I think back to that Scarecrow sequence in Scary Stories that we reviewed yeah. not long ago. Yeah. Um, you're quite hot on this one, I think, from discussions that we've had. Before. I'm quite excited about this. I can almost tell you now it's going to be a uh, mostly entertaining three-star Netflix horror film, but I'm on board with those. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah. I think you might have absolutely <laughs> almost, nailed Almost it. review it from the trailer. But yeah, I'm aboard with that. It's based on a Stephen King short story, I believe, as well, which you may or may not have mentioned earlier. Um, so yeah, I think this looks a whole heap of fun, to be honest. And I think it will be fine. It won't win any awards. It won't bit, hit any best films of the year list. But Netflix do these kind of things reasonably well, in my opinion. They throw just enough money out to make it entertaining. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I've got, I'm, I'm optimistic it will be decent. Yeah, and I mean, save for uh, Patrick Wilson, not the starriest of casts. Um, as far as I know, I mean, what do I know? They might all be massively popular TV stars or movies that I just haven't seen. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this and, and whether, in fact, you're completely on the money when you say it's a quite good three-star Netflix, uh, you know, thriller horror film. So we'll we'll <laughs> see. We'll probably have got round to that one by the time we record next week. So we'll bring you our thoughts at that point. Now, talking of our thoughts, we will be back in just a moment with a big feature review for this week which is ready or not right after this so this is uh, ready or not which as pete has mentioned two minutes ago is our feature review but i've started that sentence so i finished it um <laughs> yeah <laughs> say what you think that's what, exactly that's yeah, the least exactly. we can do on this show uh yeah this is a um a horror film, uh, well, a, a, a horror comedy film, I guess, is the best way you can describe this, um, that I was pretty down on based on the trailer that I'd seen and wasn't particularly excited for. Um, before we get to what I think, though, Pete, set this one up for us. Yeah, I will do, man, because it's a pretty simple setup. What you have at the beginning of the movie is a bride played by Samara Weaving, niece of Hugo Weaving, of course, Agent Smith from The Matrix, um, or at least the actor who played that role. Um, and she is about to be wedded to a character played by Mark O'Brien, who is from a very, very, very wealthy family. And um, as part of their being wed to one another, there is a, a kind of ritualistic board game or game of some kind, which she is told she must participate in at midnight on the first night of married life. She's kind of a little perturbed or confused that this is a real thing that actually has to happen, goes along with it. And then all hell breaks loose because it turns out that the game is not quite as innocent and, and fun and, and silly as you might have imagined. Um, yes, before we get to our full and frank thoughts on Ready or Not, here's a little clip. Are you okay? Did something happen? Yeah, no. I just, I don't feel very well. Well, if you want to lie down, can't we just play the game tomorrow? I don't know what has to be tonight. Kill, 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 kill! Hey, get him, George! Hey! Ah. Take it off now. Daddy? You just keep on playing there, buddy. Oh, you're so tense. You, lady in white. Look at this. You must be the bride. <laughs> Hi. Fitch Bradley. Grace. Pleasure. Right, so as I mentioned uh, before Pete setting up the film, I kind of, I'd seen the trailer for this, Pete, I'll be honest, and it didn't, I thought this looks a bit naff, to be honest, and I wasn't overly struck on it. It struck me as kind of a bit like a, a rehash of um, Adam Wingard's You're Next. Yeah, um, yeah, I and, felt that watching it, and I'll watching be honest, the trailer too, yeah. I stand by that. And I do stand by the fact that what harms this film a little bit for me is it does sound, it does still feel like a bit like, a, a bit like in places, a bit too much like your next for me to come out all guns blazing for it in a, in a sort of supremely almost faultless review. Um, 
But that being said, I'll be honest, I was pleasantly surprised as soon as I sat in the cinema and suddenly the uh, the BBFC title card 18 rated came up on the screen and I was just like, ah, hold on, I might might be onto a, I might be onto something here. And for the most part, I had a bloody great time with this, uh, pun absolutely intended, because this, for me, it surprised me from the outset how much this film just does not hold back in terms of in terms of the over the top gore um, and just outright horror silliness. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's sort of spoiling anything, is it, Paul, to say that the central premise here is that there is a deadly game of hide and seek, which yeah. must be participated in by, uh, well, the Samara Weaving character, the new wife of this guy from a family, yeah, absolutely, you know, uh, swimming in, in money and, and, and all kinds of financial support coming from who knows where i'm not sure what what is the family supposed to actually do for money can you so the family are they have created an like a board game empire that's right yeah absolutely and they own sports teams and that kind of thing hence why they so at midnight they play a game basically at midnight there's a there's a box that may or may not be haunted um and there's a box that basically they and they have to play the game at midnight and whatever game comes out they have to play it so sometimes they play chess other times they play checkers um, there's a few other games that have come out and like once before they've played hide and seek but for some unknown reason when they play hide and seek uh, it's hide and seek to the death um, yeah. For, yeah. It's, it's hide <laughs> seek and human sacrifice basically yeah. isn't it yeah um yeah i mean uh, yeah I'm, I'm so with you on the fact that the 18 certificate really helps here because it allows them to go like pedal to the metal in terms of right that's your <laughs> setup it's a pretty high concept setup and then from that point let's just have a load of fun with it like it reminded me a bit of well a load of things like uh, the Belco experiment that we reviewed not long ago in terms of like you've yeah. got people in a confined space they're hunting each other of course that's a bit like what happens in I don't know Battle Royale or any number of things that you could also mention in the same breath but like once you have a setup like that it's absolutely down to the writing and direction to get it right because it's exactly the kind of movie that I think would very quickly lose me as someone like yourself who's seen a ton of this type of movie, if yeah, it wasn't done with some new flourish or a level of skill that keeps you sort of entertained and guessing uh, for want of you know any, any better description. So the fact that this manages to maintain, in my opinion, for pretty much the entirety of its running time, this real sense of propulsion and excitement and fear and anticipation is real testament to the directing uh, directorial pair who uh, made the movie and, and the writers who worked on it as well. And, you know, if it's not too early to come on to this, the real big, big, big takeaway from Ready or Not for me is this actress, Samara Weaving, because the 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 performance that she gives just seems to go up through the gears in terms of not only yet like reaction shots and screams and all of the requisite stuff that you'd have from someone who is in distress in a horror movie but then a kind of swagger that she develops in this role that I don't think many other actresses at least in that demographic would be capable of um, or at least that I've seen of late I was so impressed with her I mean did did you did that stand out for you that performance I think her performance did and I think the yeah before we get back to that I think the other thing yeah and yes in fact it kind of is related and I think for me what 
what works about the film is not just the strength of the performances, but so the strength of the writing of some of the characters and of how the fact that the film at no point took itself seriously. Um, it knew that the writers knew exactly the material they were working with here, and the film was consistently funny. Um, it right till the final absolutely ridiculous moments, and I think every like everyone here was committed to that. Like no one, this is the kind of film that I think you could have an actress would come in and go, oh, have I really? Is this the role I've got? Am I really in this kind of film? And a lot of actresses would probably only give a sort of fifty percent performance and just sort of get out of like oh, I'm done. I'm done on set now. Go home for the day, and that's that film wrapped. Whereas I felt Samara Weaving here like a hundred percent threw herself into this film with boundless enthusiasm, as did a lot of the cast. I think. Um, Andy McDowell here was incredible playing against type I thought she was great as just the, the absolute bitch of her mother um, and just all of the characters were the sort of camping it up to 11 um, and it just it just felt to me like everyone it, it felt to me like it was a good set it would have been a good set to work on and that everyone was having a great time with the movie and I think that came across that yeah. came across in the film itself yeah, you get like sequences like the one where uh, it's something like a bolt thrower or a crossbow or something, but uh, in the kitchen, I think they are, and somebody gets shot and then the character's giving a monologue, but the person who's been shot is dying too loudly. And so it's like yeah. interrupting <laughs> this monologue that's being given to the annoyance of the person who's speaking. And that stuff, yeah, the comedy timing on that stuff is is absolutely bang on, which uh, is, yeah, a really impressive thing, I think, to to pull off and you're you're right as well Andy McDowell everybody sort of connects for eternity with four weddings and a funeral yeah. and here you see her playing this yeah ice queen murderous yeah like bitch character um also like any movie which leads to a conclusion in which a whole set of people are just chanting hail satan kind of has <laughs> my has my vote i mean i was just doing this thing that happens every now and again in the cinema in the dark just smiling to myself when that was happening which which may say something to disturbing about me but like it was just done just done so well I think uh, in terms of nodding to the people who are fans of this genre all the way through winking to the audience like yeah uh, we know yeah, what sure. you like and we like that too you know which yeah I no I, is... I, I completely agree with that I and mean, as I said you know as much as it as much as I'll go back to what I said at the beginning I think my slight criticism it did feel a touch like too much like your next for probably its own good in places um and i think your next is probably the superior film out of the two this for me sits happily alongside it and still doesn't do enough to feel like a rip-off of your next um because i think it's so silly um and it's so over the top and you know i, I won't spoil the ending but it's it's bonkers it's oh, absolutely oh, bonkers it's a so. it's a real treat <laughs> it's yeah. a real treat even if you're only somewhat on board until you get to the end i mean there will be people who won't like that ending but like i just feel for the people because it was absolutely joyous and just like the use of things like um just i don't know drip dripping blood and like aftermath is just fantastic yeah. at the end and yeah like like i said before i mean i'm i'm banging on about it a bit i guess but like Samara, Samara Weaving just like smashed it out of the park in terms of the role that she was given and the parameters that she was given to work in and I'll be so interested I mean yeah I've seen her she was in the, the babysitter that was a kind of you know okay oh, that's uh, genre movie from, from a few years ago yeah, and, yeah. and she I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten yeah and she was that. fine there but like yeah she's really coming into her stride as an actress I think and and I hope she gets good material to work with next I don't know what she's on next but we'll keep an eye out and update people on this show obviously if you're interested but um, any further or final thoughts on Ready or Not there, Paul? Uh, probably my one of my most pleasant surprises of the year. I would describe Ready or Not as 
Yeah, yeah, I I would go with that. That I went basic into expecting well. expecting. Uh, I went into expecting a a two star Netflix genre piece uh, and got <laughs> and got much yeah. much more from it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this was one of the movies where um, I happened to have a couple of hours in the daytime because my schedule's a bit uh, irregular, and I went to see it safe in the knowledge that I wasn't sort of. Um, movie cheating on my wife because she would have no interest in the sort of level of (laughs) blood spilling and stuff that takes place in this movie and so uh, I felt good that I'd managed to squeeze it into the schedule and then like you said Paul like what a what a great surprise because it really could have been something you know decidedly mediocre with the stuff that they were working with but yeah it's it's every bit not that so yeah this i'm i might be a bit giddy because i saw it quite recently but this could trouble my top 10 at the end of the year it could oh wow okay i I don't know i don't know there's a lot of movies released in 12 months and maybe that's overstating it but certainly i'd be surprised if it's not like top 20 by okay high praise indeed um cool well as if this show needed any other reason to put in a lovely segue, what we're going to do next <laughs> is we're going to have our top five this week connected to Ready or Not directly because we're going to be counting down our top five dysfunctional movie families right after this. So I'm going to go straight in at number five with my fifth uh, fifth favourite dysfunctional movie family. Um, it's not a series of films I'm overly fond of, in all honesty. I think I remember enjoying Meet the Parents um, enough, because I think, I believe if I remember rightly, I, the first time I watched Meet the Parents was was at an ex's parents' house, and it was the first time I'd met them. So the first Meet the Parents film definitely resonated me, with me on that basis um, and created some quite awkward um, moments sitting on the sofa quaffing wine. Uh, this is, of course, The Fockers um, from the Meet the Parents series of films. Um, if anyone's seen these films, you'll fully understand that they are very much a dysfunctional family um, uh, and acted, for the most part, quite well. Pete, have you seen any of these films at all? Uh, yeah, I've seen Meet the Parents, and I think I've... I might have seen all of them, you know, man. I might have seen all of them. <laughs> but but I'm I'm intrigued to know why this one in particular stood out as the like choice for this list. Obviously you're not saying it's like your fifth favourite movie of all time. No, but like no, no. why did it stick out for this list? I just think it's it's yeah, it's basically the the balance in it. I think it's the performances, to be honest. I think the and the this kind of mix of actors that you've kind of haven't really seen working together, and I think this is probably one of the early tar- one of the early examples of De Niro picking up comedy would that be fair to say I think in 2000 so it was kind of it was a lot of kind of quite famous people playing against type um and I just think the chemistry the chemistry between the family is fantastic and there's certain you can pick up certain bit you can you can see certain elements I certainly saw a lot of elements when you're meeting in-laws and meeting other families from from true experiences. I said the first time I watched it was with um, an ex's parents sitting on the sofa, so there were some awkward moments there. And I just think, yeah, the the diminishing the diminishing sequels aside, um, meet the parents was a very sharp observation about um, meeting in-laws for sure. Yeah, yeah, fair. Like, yeah, lie detector tests and you know uh, character assassinations and all the kind of things that you worry about when you go to meet in-laws for for certain. Um, number five on my countdown for this dysfunctional families list is uh, a movie that I hadn't really thought about for a while until we came to do this, but it's a movie that I really, really liked from 2013. It's August Osage County. 
Um, this is a movie written by Tracy Letts, a uh, quite renowned uh, screenwriter and writer in general, and directed by John Wells. But it's a movie that just basically allows Meryl Streep to just go off on one. She's. Uh, have you seen this movie? August no, I've heard good things about this, but I've never caught up with it. Oh, man, you have to. It, it, it is just a, a, an absolute gem of an example of family a family melting down in front of your eyes it's a family that doesn't spend time together and is brought together by a family crisis they have to spend time in a house but they have no choice so what they do is uh, spend all of their time either straight aggressively or insidiously like passively aggressively ripping shreds out of each other and like i say meryl streep is on incredible form in this in this movie in a very specific enjoyable way I think for her as much as it is just bile spraying in all directions uh, in terms of the interactions here you've got Julia Roberts Dermot Mulroney uh, a real starry cast and um, this thing currently sits at 58 on Metacritic which surprises me because this movie impressed me a lot in terms of its its writing and its sort of um, performances at the time so yeah I think in terms of dysfunctional families it had to make the list and it made my number five what have you got a four there Paul? Uh, the Corleone family Pete from the Godfather series of films um, possibly should be higher on this list to be perfectly honest um, they don't really need any in the introduction um, a bunch of murderous mafia bastards from the Godfather films um, originally with Marlon Brando sitting on the top um, Don Corleone and then with um, Michael Corleone and a almost never better Al Pacino sitting on top who ended up uh, murdering his own brother Fredo um, and then if you if you include and that's just then that's just the people with the Corleone name if you include the wider crime family then um, yeah I'd say fairly dysfunctional in terms of assassinating each other taking each other's business uh, yeah the Corleone family they need no introduction and they are my number four most favorite dysfunctional family cool yeah no I mean you can't there's no argument there <laughs> from my side anyway <laughs> Um, at number four for me, again, a movie that I've enjoyed just thinking about, and this is why I love doing these lists sometimes. Uh, this one is, I believe, Dog May 2. Uh, it is Festen or A Celebration from Thomas Vinterberg from 1998. Um, and this is a movie that I first saw, I think, when I was at, maybe at university or just before university, where um, I wasn't at university in 1998, just to throw that out there. Um, but uh, this is a movie which basically, again, is a family reuniting. It's almost as if some families should not do that. Uh, a family reuniting <laughs> only for an absolute doozy of a bombshell to be dropped. So what you have is the patriarch of the family who is celebrating I believe could be his 80th birthday it's that and or his retirement but at this grand party gathering together all these disparate um, arms wings of this family uh, one of the sons reveals that he was molested by the father uh, when he was a child and this is revealed to everybody there at which point the entire thing is just a, a giant social explosion um, or anti-social explosion maybe m more to the point of course dog may is this thing that started in in 1995 with Lars von Trier and Vinterberg and others where the, there were all this set of rules about how you could and couldn't make films as a kind of answer to what they saw as the excesses of like the Hollywood model and Hollywood movie making at the time and Amongst these were included things like not being able to have music that wasn't playing in the scene, 
not being able to use more than like one camera, having to use handheld cameras. And I very, very strongly believe that the best example, or at least the, the, the best overall movie that came out of that movement is Fest in the Celebration. So I would recommend if like any of what I've just said sounds I've actually not seen Festin, so I'm, I need to. It's been, again, been on my list for years, but I've not Oh, it's really it, good, so. man. It's it's really good. It's kind of uh, makes you feel really uncomfortable and kind of queasy in the pit of your stomach, but it's also kind of funny in like a very, very dark way um, because of just how much this stuff is all blowing up in everybody else, uh, in everybody's face uh, from this revelation early on. So yeah, that one's Festin from 1998, and that's my number four dysfunctional family. Paul, what is number three for you? Uh, my number three dysfunctional family, and I tell you what, I'm going to give you the name of the family and you're going to give me the name of the film and then I'm going to be impressed. Okay. Are you ready for this? It is I'll the try. Jordan family. Oh, goodness. The Jordan family. Uh, yes. Are you talking about Jordan, like the model, like Katie the Price? The surname. No, the surname Jordan is the surname of the family in this film, not like the model Katie Price. Um, okay. And not the director, Neil Jordan. Uh, you're going to have to help Neil me. Jordan. You're going to have to help me because there's going to uh, be dead it, is. it took me a while to find this. It's the family. It's the family from the film Happiness. Uh, right with you yeah I wouldn't have got it I wouldn't have got it but this was one that, no. that was very close to making my top five yeah it took me, me a while to, it took me a while to find the family I say it took me a while to find the family name I checked on IMDb to see what the surname of the characters was so I'm not gonna not gonna take all this credit uh for doing not very much work uh yeah three sisters um if anyone's seen this film it's dark um probably as dark if not more dark than Festin although I haven't seen Festin um it's certainly one of the blackest comedies I've ever seen and I think we talked about it on a show a little while ago actually weirdly enough I think it came up um yeah three sisters who despise each other um all of which have issues of their own um and one of them is married to a child molesting um a child molester um that's Todd Solon's that's happiness um I'll leave it at that if you haven't seen it and the film's quite funny <laughs> yeah yeah for some yeah. reason any time that happiness comes up um in discussion not the concept but the movie um I'm I always think of that like intricately orchestrated sequence at the end that involves a, a boy and a dog and a mother and yeah. um yeah i mean watch the movie because i am not describing on here my mum listens to this sometimes uh right the number three movie that I've picked for dysfunctional families then, Paul, is one earlier film from a guy that we both quite like called Yorgos Lanthimos. This one is The Family in Dogtooth. Now, oh, I can't give this you... This came near my list. This came yeah, near my list as well. I can't give you... I couldn't lead you in and tease you with, like, guess it from the family name because the family <laughs> members in Lanthimos film are called Father and mother, and older daughter, and younger daughter, because of course they are. We've actually got a yeah. character here called Colleague. Um, so yeah for anyone who doesn't know Yorgos Lanthimos makes these sort of hermetically sealed worlds where there are like a load of rules a bit like I'm talking about with Dogme in a sense except here these rules dictate how the characters behave within an environment in the case of Dogtooth it was my I think first Lanthimos film and I just found it endlessly fascinating what you have is a family a set of parents who raise their children within a a kind of completely altered reality in the sense that they teach them language with uh, meanings other than the actual meanings understood by everybody else. So when you might call a lamp a lamp, they would call a lamp a fountain. And so when they're referring to a, f a lamp they're in fact referring to a fountain or vice versa. And this completely recasts their understanding of the world around them. And then on top of that, 
they're taught all this kind of myth about how they may um, interact with the world, why they can't ever leave the family home. And all of this ties back to the film's title, Dogtooth. But it's a fascinating, fascinating movie in terms of the influence of parents, in terms of the influence of education, in terms of the acquisition of language in general. But above all things for this list, when your parents have taught you the world in a way that is completely different from how anybody else has been taught the world, I would say your family is relatively dysfunctional. When you're trying <laughs> to tear out your own teeth in order to be able to leave your home because you're scared that otherwise you'll die, I think your family is a little bit dysfunctional. So yeah, my number three pick is Dogtooth from 2009. Paul, we're up to number two. What do you have? Uh, I'm going to go straight in here with what became, I think, later in the series, known as the Sawyer family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, if anyone has watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre and has witnessed that dinner scene, I need to say little more uh, than a dysfunctional family of cannibals who murder people and eat them uh, and treat each other like shit. Um, and are, I would say, I think it's fair to say, pretty unpleasant people for anyone who has seen uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre possibly inbred there's possibly some inbreeding going on in there as well and i will go with what you said pete if you are inbreeding then i would describe that as dysfunctional any thoughts yeah, pete, it, on the sawyer family it, no it's it's so funny man because when we were when i was putting my list together i thought about this family obviously because why would you not and then somehow convinced myself that like i'm not going to put them on the list because the family is functional at doing what the family wants to do which is like kill and cannibalize people and be horrible but on the other hand as you quite rightly point out i think there is quite a level of dysfunction in the way in which they're choosing to live their lives so maybe yes. yeah they need a little bit of outside influence to just kind of write the ship in terms yeah, of yeah uh, just just a touch maybe time. just one session in family therapy i think would sort out the Sawyer family for sure yeah like so, when, when your yeah. family is 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 collecting together its efforts to try and get granddad to bludgeon <laughs> someone with a hammer like yeah something's gone a little bit awry for you yeah. guys yeah um Okay, I can't. I feel like I can't quite compete with the dysfunction of that family with my <laughs> with my number two. But I've got to put this on because it's got to go on as many lists as possible. Number two is from old Vinnie G, Vincent Gallo, and it is Buffalo sixty six. The reason Buffalo sixty six is on this movie is because of the well, obviously the sequences that are spent between Billy Brown, the central character, and his family, uh, who basically hate him. So the the plot of Buffalo sixty six is that uh, Billy needs to uh, has been released from prison and he's going to go and visit his parents but his parents kind of hate him and they've obviously got a fractured relationship so he kidnaps a girl played by Christina Ricci to convince them that he's actually doing quite well in life uh, ignoring or not talking about his prison time uh, he's actually a successful guy he's going to present the right image just like you you know and I and everybody might do to our parents on occasion try and present the best version of yourself with a kidnap victim sure uh, and they're going to have a nice dinner together where everyone's going to make small talk and realize that Billy has made a great success of his life but in that talk you learn uh for example that his mother despises him because his birth inconvenienced her ability to watch American football in a particularly <laughs> important season for the Buffalo Bills then when she is asked to or she asks her husband to go and get um photographic proof of Billy's upbringing to show to his quote-unquote girlfriend played by Christina Ricci she yells get the Billy picture because from his childhood <laughs> There is 
a photograph of their beloved son. Uh, his dad, no better, his dad says things like, uh, during the dinner, let him fill up on bread because he's not worthy of eating any more meat. Uh, he accuses his son of pointing his knife at him because his butter knife has been adjusted on the table. And then he proceeds, the father, to take the girl, Christina Ricci, to a bedroom, sit her on his knee and creepily croon a song whilst kind of stroking her thigh. All of this stuff is hardly the behaviour of a loving and supportive family. So, yeah, um, you know, get, get the Billy picture is one of the things that always rings through my head when I'm thinking of families that just don't really work. And, and I always like to reassure myself that there is one more than one photo of me as a child in my parents' house somewhere, you know, uh, amongst the photo albums. So, yeah, my number two is Buffalo 66 from 1998. OK, for my number one, Pete, I'm going to list the dysfunction here. And then okay. I want you to... We should have played this game from the beginning. I'm going to list the dysfunction and you have yep. to guess which movie family this is. Uh, it's not too difficult, so I think you might pick it up. So, okay. Attempts to kill his father, having already kissed his sister. His nephew then ends up killing his own father. Which family is this? It's. I'm going to look like an idiot if I'm wrong. Is it Star Wars? <laughs> It is. It's the Skywalker family from Star oh, Wars. Thank well goodness. done, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if those things aren't dysfunctional, I don't know what is. Uh, that character is, of course, Luke. He tries to kill his father, Anakin, who previously, in fairness, Anakin had killed his own metaphorical father figure when he struck down Obi-Wan. Um, so that's pretty dysfunctional. Followed by, followed by in the later films, when Ben Solo, uh, daughter of Leia, sister of Luke, so his nephew, uh, kills his own father, um, Han Solo in Force Awakens, um, and we ne we don't know who is the Skywalker left in the last in the next uh, Star Wars film. Um, but yes, let's. I would have thought there's probably more Skywalkers to come. So yes, my number one dysfunctional family um, is the Skywalkers from the Star Wars series. Top that. <laughs> yeah, see that that could have troubled my list if I had even a cursory knowledge of Star Wars. Yeah. The, the the limit of my knowledge is very tentatively guessing that that might be the answer to your yeah. question. Fair enough. Um, number one for me, most dysfunctional family that I've seen or I remember from movies over the years is is a movie that I've talked about at least one time on this podcast before, for better or worse, and that is from two thousand and one from Mike Takeshi, and the film is Visitor Q because this is a movie that I, to be honest, Paul, I don't really recommend to that many people uh, for good reason. No, I don't I blame probably... you, to be honest, because I've seen this after you recommended it to me. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, you, you, you've <laughs> got to be very careful with the people that you recommend Visitor Q to. I mean, this is a movie that begins with a sequence where a middle-aged man is mocked by a girl for the uh, the very diminutive size of his penis, only for it to be revealed, but that that girl, the the <laughs> hooker in the scenario, is in fact his own blood relative and daughter um the movie then goes weirder and weirder and darker and darker uh the mother in the family finds her own sort of self-realization and power through the fact that she can auto-lactate produce milk from her breasts on uh, at will and fill rooms with it at times in this movie uh, all of the while she's fighting back from the brink because her young son uh, physically abuses her very regularly and treats her very very badly the father apart from being um, yeah mocked by his own daughter in a sort of sexual context has also been uh, effectively gang raped by a group of ruffians with a microphone because he works as a roving reporter um, and has his microphone very much turned back 
on himself. Um, into all this stuff comes the visitor, uh, or visitor cue of the title, who have, who uh, tries to f- bring the family back together. It seems like a difficult task. Uh, by, amongst <laughs> other things, banging their heads together, literally. Um, and by allowing them to see the sort of beautiful absurdity in everything that surrounds them. Um, I tried, I'm not sure successfully, to, to say on this show before that the movie is very funny, but I do think Visitor Q is very funny. However, like I said at the outset, I don't think, unless you have prior knowledge of Miyake Takeshi's movies or you're into like really sort of out there outre stuff, that you should plunge into Visitor Q. <laughs> I think, try yourself on something like uh, Itchy the Killer. If that works for you, which again... Maybe not. I love that. I love that. That's a that's a jumping off point for it. Yeah, I agree with you though. But yeah, with that director, if Itchy the Killer is a jumping off point, you should you really should know what to expect next. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I can soft pedal you and say you know go in with you know like uh, one of the the, the um, gangland movies that he makes that are really sort of slow and and trudge along and then something absolutely bonkers happens. You can do that, but it's not going to set you up for the sort of Itchy the Killer visitor queue territory. But yeah, like. There was nothing else that could top my list when we came to do this one other than this family because this family is an absolute mess. I mean, one of the things that actually brings the mother and father together in sort of unison uh, and a bit more of a bond than they've had in a largely broken relationship is that they collaborate on dismembering a woman that the father has tried to assault. I mean, it's it's all over the map, Paul, and I sound like a monster describing this movie and then I'm going to turn around and say that it, it, it's quite funny and I think to a certain extent fairly insightful but um yeah i don't know if i want to die on this hill but number one is visitor q from 2001 um yes uh you've done number one already have you yeah it was the skywalkers oh god star wars oh god we're going out on visitor q in that going out on visitor q yes in that case can you give me if you've got it there just a quick rundown for the listeners of five through one yeah of course i can so number five my favorite dysfunctional family were the fuckers from the meet the parents series uh the corleone family from godfather the jordan family from happiness the sawyer in inverted commas family from texas chainsaw massacre and the skywalker family from star wars and I had at number five the reunited family from August Osage County. At number four, uh, the family from Festen or a celebration in English from 1998. Um, at number three, I had the uh, parents and the the girl teenage girls from Dogtooth. At number two, uh, Billy and his family from Buffalo '66. And at number one, as I've just mentioned, everybody involved in Visitor Q, but particularly the central family there. Now, before we. Ex- exit this episode Paul we do have a little bit that we always tag on to the end of the show which is called credits this is where, where we give credits to something or credit I should say to something that we think is just right good and maybe isn't even a directly movie related thing uh, what do you have this week if anything to recommend to the listeners uh, just very quickly on the uh, remainder on the Star Wars theme. Um, Star Wars Battlefront 2, Pete, is a video game I've got back into in quite a big way recently. And it's a game that deservedly got a lot of lot and a lot and a lot more flack for locking away uh, major Star Wars characters behind paywalls, um, loot box progression, um, and basically was a pretty shitty game when it came out. Um, 
it's been out to getting on for two two years now, I think. Um, and the game just keeps getting better and better. They've just uh, they've just added a new update to it. Uh, the game is a lot of fun. Um, I'm not very good at first person shooters, and this one in this game, no one seems to care because it's Star Wars and you run around getting to play Star Wars. And I'm having a great time with it. And if you haven't gone back to it of late, I would suggest going back to it because they've fixed all the problems and it's a great Star Wars game now. So yeah, that's my very quick credit to Star Wars Battlefront Two. And you and you do yourself down and say you're not a very good like FPS player compared to me you are an absolute monster i would imagine because i know that you're you know um uh what's the game that you used to play in in teams all the time online oh destiny destiny yeah i know yeah. you had some skills at destiny i picked up because it was free i think one of the destiny games and uh it, I, I i started it and thought like oh this is good fun and it sounds cool and the guns make good noises and stuff and then i got into my, my first skirmishes that were actually a bit difficult and i was like no nah, i can't do it <laughs> <laughs> and, and and quit you know like all brave men do that's probably where i am now with first person shooters to be honest so yeah they wouldn't beat yourself up too much so yeah the old the old reflexes are going as i get older so it's like it's like basically battlefront 2 is like call of duty for dads yeah <laughs> um so for my credit this week i wanted to shoehorn in two things and these are both tv series and i'm not even going to apologize for it because i think that that line is so blurred at this point um i'll tell you for why paul the first one is actually from a few years ago i think it's 2015 maybe that this this was released it's called the night of um and it's a drama series uh, sort of based on uh, well, very much based on a crime, um, but the star here is Riz Ahmed. This one's currently on Sky Atlantic, which we have through Now TV, but I'm sure you can get it through your cable provider or whatever. Um, the Night Of is is an incredibly compelling story over eight episodes about a guy who, uh, uh, long story short, goes home with a girl that jumps in the back of his taxi that he's not supposed to be using or operating at the time, um, ends up doing a lot of drinking and a lot of drugging with this girl wakes up with a sore head not knowing what exactly went down at the end of the night and then she is has been like brutally murdered in the apartment that she owns uh, where he was and he is very very much implicated in you know being the 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 uh, key suspect in the case and the tension and incrimination on this guy just piles on and on and on during the first episode or two it's really really good Riz Ahmed is great in this um, and it's just one of those sort of superior tv series that's, that's beautifully shot and has a real style to it so I'd recommend mm. the night of in addition to that one that might be easier for more people to get to and I really want to plug on this is uh, the series on Netflix Unbelievable this one stars Caitlin that I mentioned earlier on alongside uh, Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver and this is about um, a girl again I think it's eight episodes maybe ten episodes a girl who in episode one um, has been it seems sexually assaulted in or she was sleeping and when she woke up someone was in the vicinity in her building and she was sexually assaulted the Caitlin Dever character that's what she tells the authorities and then people start asking difficult questions and questioning whether in fact this thing happened whether it was a figment of her imagination maybe it was a story that she's created for attention this series does a fantastic job of talking about um, sexual assault accusations the things that victims go through 
um, in terms of bringing these things to the attention of, of authorities. It also has Caitlin Dever at its centre, who, as I mentioned earlier on, is just, I think, one of the best young actresses working at the moment. Of course, she was in Booksmart not long ago. Um, and Tony Collette, obviously, in Hereditary from Ari Aster, who we mentioned earlier on, and mm. so good in so many places. Uh, and then Merritt Weaver's really good in this as well. So you've got these great female performances. You've got a plot that's very um, just well-written and well-observed. The girl, I forget her name, Danielle something, who played Patty Cakes, is in this as well for a bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just like superior stuff, man. And like some of our favourite actors, I think, doing really good work that if you enjoy it, you realise you've got like another seven hours ahead of you. So yeah, both of those I recommend. Nice. First one, The Night Of. Second one, Unbelievable, which is currently on Netflix and I think doing quite well uh, from all accounts on, on that platform. Good. Once I've finished Atlanta season two, which is great, I will check it out. Oh man, <laughs> I've got to finish Atlanta season one. There's too much. Uh, okay. There's too much yeah, there is the too much. of everything. Yeah, yeah, there is too much. Season two, it ups, it ups its game even further in season two. So yeah, it's very good. It's very good. Anyway, uh, what there is too much of, what there isn't enough of left is time for this show. Um, so we're going to bounce off, uh, not before I give you some social media reminders, which are at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram and Facebook. So let us know what you think of the show. Let us know if you want us to review anything. I know a couple of people have been in touch uh, with their own films they want us to review, and I will get to those. We will do that. Um, I've just been busy, so um, we'll still get to that's not a problem at all a couple of shorts we're going to have some guests lined up in the next few weeks which is quite exciting so i made some uh, hopefully new friends at six which is all good um but that is about it from me pete so we'll be back next week with a review of todd phillips joker for sure um and possibly a look at in the long grass as well depending on if we can get to it uh pete that's it from me anything else from you sir um no that's all i, I just look forward to next week's episode and yeah see you then cool goodbye shut up and sit down